0: Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode, Inauguration Day, the choosing and coronation of an Egyptian king. Believe it or not, the succession and choosing of a new king in ancient Egypt was not always a simple project. Pharaohs could suffer many challenges to their power, both in life and in death. There were frequent challenges to royal authority throughout the period of pharaonic history. There were civil wars and power struggles, and yes, even assassinations. So how did a king get chosen, and what was the process for putting them in power? Well, let's find out. Choosing a new king was either incredibly simple or bafflingly complex. Nine times out of ten, it was straightforward. If the king who had just died had a son, that son became the next heir. But what if there was no son? Or worse, what if there were two sons with an equal claim to power? What happened then? Well, if there was no son, power went to whichever man was able to gain marriage to the most prominent surviving princess or queen. Usually this would be the king's eldest daughter. In some cases, it might be the king's surviving sister or wife. Basically, If there was no son, then someone had to marry into the bloodline to ensure legitimacy. That bloodline was carried by the royal woman, and so it was not impossible to save the lineage with a well-placed marriage. The sort of men who got chosen for that role tended to have been close allies or confidants of the king who had died. Thutmose I, for instance, seems to have been a military commander before he became king, and he married a daughter of his predecessor. When that king died, Tutmos I was the most high-ranking man related to the royal family by marriage, and so he became king, and a new strand of the royal bloodline was born. But the Egyptian palace was a complicated place, and there is plenty of evidence over the 2,000 plus years of pharaonic history for us to guess the process of choosing a king was not always straightforward. Sometimes a king died with more than one son. Either there were a couple of boys the same age, from different but equally ranked wives, or there was an elder son with lower status, and a younger son with higher status. The issues of rank and prestige played a big role in Egyptian society. With these kinds of dilemmas, the members of the royal family were sometimes faced with some rather difficult choices. What went into all of that? Well, if a power struggle seemed likely. The choice of ruler tended to fall into the hands of three groups. Firstly, and usually most important, there was the royal family itself. The cousins, wives, princesses, all those sort of people. Secondly, there was the high officials of the government, people involved in the administration and the daily running of the kingdom. Finally, there were the priests of the great temples. Depending on the time period in question, each of these three groups could be more or less powerful than the others. In the old kingdom, around 2500 BCE, the royal family held almost all the cards. By the end of the new kingdom, however, the priesthood was so influential that it actually took over the kingship for itself. That was around 1150 BCE. So you can see that over the course of a good 1500 to 2000 years, the power balances between these groups varied wildly. In between, there were times when the nobles were more powerful than the ruler that they theoretically obeyed. Then there were periods when the kings ruled with a sort of military dictatorship authority, with the loyalty of the army and very little else. Finally, there were the times when all the branches of society seemed united in celebration of a man that everyone could agree was the best available for the job. Let's assume for the minute that all of the background politics went ahead smoothly. Even then, a candidate for power still had to pass one particularly important test before they were chosen for authority. In the most Egyptian of rituals, the king had to be selected by none other than the great god, who was, theoretically, his divine father. In the 18th dynasty, at the time of Thutmose III, that god was the creator Amun-Ra, Tutmos III tells us in a text that when he was a youth, the royal family and courtiers assembled in the great halls of Karnak Temple, Amun's main sanctuary. Surrounded by columns, statues, and paintings of his ancestors, Tutmos stood in a crowd as though merely one among many candidates for office. Surrounded by his family and his government, the infant prince awaited his judgment. The statue of the god Amun was then brought into the hall, carried on a portable shrine by the priests of the cult. Long poles on their shoulders, the priests began to march slowly around the hall. Above them, the statue of Amun, golden skin, linen robes, watched the crowd impassively. The idea was that the god was inspecting all the candidates for kingship, searching for his favoured candidate. Of course, being god, he knew whom he wanted already, he just had to find them among the gathered dignitaries. If he could not find his favoured son, well… The god's shrine, carried and steered by the priests, suddenly stopped in its walk around the hall. The shrine wobbled slightly, and then, incrementally, it dipped, bowing towards the crowd. Who was it pointing at? Well, who else? The little Prince the III who now came forward. As the priests, with their burdens, stood before the young prince, the shrine of the great god trembled slightly, and thus it was communicated to all and sundry, here was Amun's choice, this was his most favoured son, behold, look upon him. Amun Ra's role in choosing a king became more and more important as the centuries went by. From the 18th dynasty, around 1500 BCE, down to the end of the new kingdom around 1150, the role of the god seems to have become incrementally more and more powerful. Eventually, great rulers like Ramesses II were even naming themselves Setepu Ra or the one chosen by Amun-Ra. In effect, the choice of king slowly became less and less overtly political, and more and more theological. It's all an illusion, of course, a polite fiction concealing the fact that, behind the walls of the royal palace, a new succession was shaped and decided absolutely by politics, influence and power, and occasionally violence. It was six parts bloodline and genetics, three parts status and prestige, and one part good fortune. Every king's reign was kicked off by a back-and-forth debate between those in power, most of the time it was smooth. Sometimes it could be rocky. But eventually a candidate was chosen, and he came to power as a king, the heir to his predecessor, and his reign began. But the king was not truly the king until he was crowned. So even though a king like Tutmos III might have authority, they still had to go through a coronation. In the modern United States, the reign of one president and the reign of the next transition on the same day. In Egypt, that process took a bit longer. A new ruler began his reign the morning after his predecessor died. A king would pass away, and in the night following his death, the land existed in a state of limbo between reigns. This was a dark time, literally and figuratively. The world, it seemed, was open to the threats of chaos and disorder for those crucial hours in which there was no king. Priests would pray continuously in the temples, and the people of the land would wait through the night for the coming of the dawn. Eventually, the new king was announced. This wasn't always a smooth affair. In some cases, there may have actually been a period of days or weeks before a new king was formally announced. Those were the days when the succession was doubtful, when the unexpected death of a ruler without an heir had left a vacuum. Sorting those vacuums out could occasionally take a while, and while the mighty and the powerful debated their choices, the land was in an uneasy state of waiting. Finally, a day dawned with a new ruler. The mighty had agreed on their choice, and the young man, it was almost always a young man, began to exercise his power and influence. Once that happened, the country was back on track, government could resume, religious rituals were more effective, and the long night of chaos came to its end. Now that he was in power, the new king could plan his coronation. Depending on various factors, the coronation of the king probably took place at least a few months after he actually came to power. This gave time for preparations, organization, festivities, that kind of thing and it gave the new ruler time to assert himself before he had to go up before the people and the gods. These few months were a time to prove one's fitness to rule. Today, American presidents are sworn in on the 20th of January, but that only works in a land of stable and set elections. When you're transferring supreme monarchical power, the dates of death can tend to be a bit more random, so be more flexible. The Egyptians liked to celebrate their coronations on the first day of one of the three seasons. The best day was New Year's Day, which took place in August with the start of the Nile Flood. That was the most auspicious, it was the beginning of the new year, and at least one pharaoh, a pharaoh named Horemheb, seems to have timed his coronation to go along with that date. If New Year's Day was not possible, say it was too far away or it had just been, then The first day of harvest season or the first day of planting season were also good options. This makes sense. The Egyptian king's power was extremely important to the natural agricultural cycle. A king was responsible for many things in the natural world. The flood and the abundance of the harvest were just two of those things. To make sure things went well, a king often timed his coronation for maximum effect. Ideally, the beginning of the new season his coronation in early May. This was a good time of year, the harvest season was beginning, and so it was a time of prosperity. The king could claim credit for a bountiful harvest. Surely that was a sign of divine approval, right? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. But now, let's go through what the coronation actually involved. On the day of coronation, the king appeared at the entrance gate of a temple, a temple that we call Luxor Temple. This was a separate temple to the temple of Karnak. It was a great monument in the heart of Thebes, dedicated to the worship of the king's soul and his power. It was the centre of many grandiose festivals dedicated to the king, including the Religious Jubilee or Sed Festival, which we will learn about in episode 71. The coronation of the king was called by several different names. One of them was Sema or Union, this represented the unification of the two lands in the person of the king. The king, after all, was the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The other name for the coronation was a bit more grandiose and fanciful. That name was Khai. Khai translates as to appear in glory. It has a sort of double meaning going on with it. Firstly, Khai refers to the king literally appearing on the throne itself and it also refers to the appearance of the two great crowns upon his head. As the red crown of lower Egypt and the white crown of upper Egypt were placed upon his brow, the king appeared before the gods as an anointed sovereign. So, the chai was the appearance of a new ruler in all respects. The chai, or appearance in glory, was a bit more complicated than just sitting on a chair and putting on a hat there were at least three sacred tasks involved in this process. Now, honestly, the Egyptians were a bit vague at describing this event, but historians have reconstructed them based on a few centuries' worth of references. Certainly, there were probably changes over time, and the coronation did not always go in the exact same way, but what I'm about to give you is a sort of general picture, based on the current records that survive. The new king in this case, Thutmose III, appeared at the gates of the temple before dawn, in order to prepare for the day ahead. First, he had to be purified by the priests responsible for purifications. These priests were called wab priests, and wab literally means purified. Purification seems to have been incredibly important, and even the Greek writer Herodotus tells us about it in great detail the king's body would probably be shaved for purification, and his body rubbed with oils and incense. Now, in the case of Thutmose III, this was probably a two-year-old child. The king came to power when he was an infant. So I really hope that Thutmose III was in a good mood on the day of his coronation. I've recently been helping to look after my nieces a lot, and I can say that now that I'm a bit experienced with it, The idea of trying to anoint and dress and purify an uncooperative two-year-old? Well, a shudder just to think about it. Anyway, the priests got little Tutmo's clean and bathed. He was then taken into the halls of the great temple, and towards a pair of shrines that had been set up for the occasion. There were two of these shrines, one to the north and one to the south, and they were respectively called the Per Nu, or the House of the Waters, and the Per Wer, the great house. They stood for the lands of lower and upper Egypt respectively, and so when the king went into them, he was taking the first step in a ritual of union, Semar. This was a union that would bring the two lands of Egypt together under his authority, and ensure that the world and those two lands were secure and peaceful while he reigned. Purifications took place at every ritual event, at least according to Herodotus. For the incoming king, the purification ritual was supremely important, not just because it was appropriate for the circumstances, but also because the king was effectively becoming the highest priest in all the land. America has its commander-in-chief. Ancient Egypt had the priest-in-chief. The new king was entering into a world of sacred knowledge, hidden from 99.9% of the population. He was given access to the most sacred writings and information, knowledge that very few others could access. In effect, the king was learning the divine secrets of the Egyptian universe. The question underlying all this, of course, is what if he wasn't up to that task? Well, the second phase of the coronation was designed to induct the king into the mysteries and powers of the divine, the powers of the gods. So now that he was purified in the houses of the two lands, the king was approached directly by the gods themselves. At this point in the coronation, two priests came forward. Each of these priests was dressed as a different god. One, the falcon god Horus, the other, the ibis god Thoth. Horus, the power of kingship itself, and Thoth, the wisdom of the ruler, carried with them together a wooden carrying chair, Essentially, a portable throne. The king was placed in the throne, and these two gods, along with some attendants, carried him into the temple towards the Hall of Coronation. Effectively, this suggested that the king was being literally taken to his power by the gods themselves. He was being supported on their shoulders, and it was their efforts that gave him his power. As they entered the Hall of Coronation, this is where the real magic would happen. The king was seated upon a throne in a hall built by one of his ancestors. Amidst a haze of incense smoke, lotus perfumes, and the gentle breeze of the Nile, the king was approached by another pair of high priests. The priests carried, solemnly, the two crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. These two crowns conveyed the most sacred moment in the whole coronation, the symbolic union of the two lands upon the brow of the chosen king. The two priests came forward. They touched the crown of Upper Egypt and the crown of Lower Egypt onto the new king's head. They spoke invocations for the king's health and eternity of his reign, and then they stepped back, and just like that, Egypt had a new pharaoh. Of course, the coronation was immediately followed with all kinds of political ceremonies. First of all, the king had to proclaim to all assembled what would his new name be, The naming of a king was important. It told people what gods he considered particularly favourable, and so it gave his loyal subjects an idea of what his agenda might be. Of course, it was all worked out and chosen beforehand, but the formalities still had to be observed. The king announced and recorded his name in three places. Firstly, the names were written on a wooden staff held by the priest who was dressed as Thoth. Since Thoth was the record keeper of the gods, it was appropriate that a king's name should be recorded on the gods' staff. This way, the name forever went into the halls of the gods, into their archives essentially. Secondly, a block of stone was carved with the new names. This block of stone was attended by a priestess. This priestess was dressed as the goddess Seshat or Time. This seems logical right, even to us, Stone is enduring, and just like time is enduring, the goddess Seshat was all-powerful. And so, by carving the names on a block of stone, the king was effectively securing his own immortality. Together, Thoth and Seshat would announce their approval of the names, and the wish that the new king would celebrate millions of jubilees. In other words, these two gods, the gods of wisdom and time, declared to all that as far as they were concerned, this new king should live forever and rule forever. Not a bad start, right? The third record of the king's name was kept at the temple of Heliopolis in the north of the country. There, the priests, or perhaps the king if he was there in person, would write the royal names upon the leaves of a persia tree. The persia tree is an evergreen tree, meaning that it doesn't lose its leaves in winter. So by putting his name on the leaves of this tree, a king was connecting himself with eternal growth and never-ending vitality. It's that whole agricultural cycle again, one of the most foundational bedrock components of a king's power. Again, not a bad start to the reign. With the official naming of the king, and some other minor ceremonies like founding temples or receiving the obedience of courtiers, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt was now anointed. And so, the inauguration of a new pharaoh was completed, and a new reign began in earnest. As each pharaoh took power and sat upon the throne with the twin crowns of the country upon his head, the courtiers would bow before him, and the gods would raise their arms in celebration at their new choice. The ascension of a new pharaoh was a new beginning, both literally in a political sense and figuratively in a cosmic sense. Egyptian pharaohs often seem to have treated their reign as if it was the first reign in all of eternity. They would describe chaos before them, and after their appearance, their appearance in glory or khai, they would say that the world was brought back into order. Of course it was a literary trope, and they knew that just as well as we did, but it was an important part of the whole process, the idea that before there was chaos and degradation, but with their coming, there was the coming of order and great power. It's hardly a unique narrative, is it? The History of Egypt podcast will return soon with episode 71, in which we recount the said festivals and celebrations of Tutmos III in the 30th year of his reign. It's a grand celebratory episode, so it's a good way to start the new year. For now, enjoy the rest of your winter break. We'll see you soon. Purchase necessary, BGW. group void were prohibited by law, see terms and conditions eighteen plus.